Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The first time I ever saw Bigfoot, I was only about seven or eight. Okay, it was just some jerky video footage of a hairy figure walking along a riverbed looking back over its shoulder, but it still left a lasting impression. From listening to the podcast Wild Thing, I've learnt that this famous film is called the Patterson-Gimlin film. It was recorded back in 1967 by two guys in California. And whether this film is a fake or not, and there are plenty of theories out there that it is actually a hoax, the story of Sasquatch, of a hairy hominid living out in the wild, is widespread and enduring. Laura Krantz found out that she'd got a distant relative who devoted his academic career and risked his reputation on finding Bigfoot. So she spent a year in the lab and out in the wild on the hunt for the big guy, tiptoeing between the sceptics and the believers to explore the legend, some of the wacky theories about it, and what modern science is saying about it today. I'll speak to Laura in just a moment about what she found out, but here's some of the first episode of Wild Thing. It's called Grover, and it's about that distant relative of Laura's I mentioned. Despite the fact that Grover died back in 2002, he's still a legend in the Bigfoot community. His work remains the foundation for the more serious side of Sasquatch research. But even Grover publicly admitted that he started out as a skeptic. Did I think they were real? No, no way. I was here at Washington State University for about two years uh, before I um, finally got hold of some uh, direct information, uh, a pair of footprints. One of them was obviously crippled. That set of footprints found in 1969 outside an old mining town in northeast Washington, changed his mind. In Grover's professional opinion, they were too realistic to ignore. The design of foot that's implied by the crippling was exactly what you would expect for uh, a creature about eight feet tall and enormously heavy. If somebody faked that and put all these subtle hints of the anatomy design in that, he had to be a real genius, expert at anatomy, and um, very inventive and original thinking. And so, with that, Grover threw himself into Bigfoot. He spent the remainder of his life looking, because he knew that while he considered Bigfoot to be a flesh-and-blood creature, he would need to provide concrete proof before the rest of the world would accept it as fact. His work in this topic, along with his academic credentials, made him the preeminent expert on Sasquatch. Now, Bigfoot scholarship is, surprise, a very small field. So maybe it's not that hard to be preeminent. But it was something he pursued publicly, at risk to both his personal and his professional life. Bigfoot wasn't particularly popular with the anthropology faculty at Washington State University. That's where Grover had tenure. Even the chair of anthropology, who was a friend said Grover was seen as an embarrassment to the department. His obsession seriously delayed his academic career and almost cost him a promotion. 
he's still the butt of jokes in anthropology circles. But Grover's students loved him. He just cared about cared about his students. Brilliant and lovely and a wonderful man and a loving guy. Just cared about cared about people who were serious about what he was studying. They described his courses to me as exhaustive, thorough, meticulous, organized. Former students said they learned a tremendous amount. He mostly played it straight in the classroom and only gave one scientific lecture on Bigfoot every year as part of his Anthropology 101 course. That was enough to hook students like Chris Spencer. He's shaped my opinion of Sasquatch. Chris went to Washington State in the 1990s. We met at a Bigfoot campout in Oregon. Yeah, a Bigfoot campout. More on that later. But when he realized I was related to Grover, he immediately started talking about how Grover's class was one of his favorites. That one Bigfoot lecture turned Chris from just another anthropology student into a believer. I'm one of those people, I'm totally on the scientific side of it. It's flesh and blood. I don't, I don't believe Sasquatch has supernatural powers or anything like that. And I tend to, my whole opinion of Sasquatch is kind of based upon Grover's opinion of it. He was one of many people who cited Grover as their entry point to Bigfoot, their guide for studying the beast. Why? Well, Grover took a very scientific approach to the evidence, and he established how scientists should study Sasquatch if they take it seriously. He analyzed footprints for anatomical accuracy, dismissing many as fakes. He constructed biomechanical models and considered the creature's evolution using the latest anthropological findings. He took something that seemed like total nonsense and applied the same rules that he would apply to any other scientific inquiry. His approach to the Bigfoot question was, as one former grad student put it, Typical Krantz. I mean, everything he did was thorough and logical. Totally runs in the family. And speaking of family, this was a man completely devoted to his work and his Irish wolfhounds. And the dogs are important. I'll talk about them in a future episode. But somehow he found the time to get married. Four times, to be exact. I don't know much about his first three wives, but you could say it was Bigfoot who introduced Grover to his fourth wife, Diane Horton. Back in the 1980s, she was living in Denver, having finished her master's in biology. She was already curious about Bigfoot when she read about Grover's work. I saw Grover's name in a newspaper, and so I wrote to him, because it said he was a professor, and I'd never heard of anybody who was in academia that said anything positive about Sasquatch. They exchanged letters and then finally met in person. When they married, Diane helped Grover with his Bigfoot research, which involved overseas travel to the Soviet Union and China to discuss Bigfoot's distant cousins. And there were road trips around the Pacific Northwest conducting interviews with eyewitnesses. We went to interview this guy who had seen Bigfoot. And he was this backwoodsman-type farm boy, just humongous guy, probably 250 pounds, all muscle. And he, he said that he was out there shoot, uh, hunting deer, and he saw one. A Bigfoot. He said he'd never seen anything so big. And he says, I shit my pants. <laughs> and he blushed. And it was like, wow. 
if that guy did that. She thinks that she and Grover collected about 20 of these eyewitness accounts. But Grover also got all these testimonials in the mail. Confessionals, they called them. Because the person would write, I'm 87 years old. I have to tell you what happened when I was 10. I've never told anybody before, but I have to get this off my chest. People who'd kept their experience a secret for decades. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they didn't want to be laughed at. But they all saw something that stuck with them. They believed. And he had hundreds of those letters. With a brief little story, I was out by the barn and this Bigfoot thing walked by. Sadly, Grover didn't keep them. He just tossed them away. Because what he wanted was evidence and proof. And eyewitness accounts weren't enough. He was a scientist to the core. But you might not have known that from how he dressed. He always wore these safari jackets and the little, like, fisherman hat. So that gave him the idea that he was a, a hunter or something rather than a professor. He didn't wear suits. A hunter? who preferred sleeping in his own bed. But he didn't like camping in, in a tent. He didn't like a tent. He had his van all fixed up with a bed. And a, I wanted him to go, you know, let's take a tent. We can go farther. But um, no, he didn't. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably going to be a little harder to find Bigfoot if you're not willing to spend a couple nights deep in the woods. I've talked to a lot of people about their Bigfoot sightings. You'll hear their stories in the upcoming episodes. But most of them were out in the wilderness somewhere, well off the beaten path. Some of episode one of Wild Thing called Grover, produced and presented by Laura Krantz. And I spoke to Laura and asked her if she could remember the very first time she'd heard about Bigfoot. What I remember most is there was always the tabloid headlines. Um, the Weekly World News and the National Enquirer were the two big tabloidy, trashy newspapers that were by every single grocery store checkout as you left. And there was always some headline there about Bigfoot, you know, some woman saying I had Bigfoot's baby or any number of other like crazy out of this world headlines. So of course you think it's a big joke. And then when I was a kid, there was a movie that came out called Harry and the Hendersons, which I think a lot of people are, are probably familiar with, which was basically this family goes camping and they hit something on the drive home and that something turns out to be a Bigfoot. So I won't give anything else away because <laughs> people might want to watch it. But those were kind of the two touchstones I had for Bigfoot. And, you know, you'd be out camping and someone would make the joke, oh, what if that's Bigfoot over there? But the Patterson-Gimlin film was something I found out about later. Because I think I can remember seeing that when I was a kid and it being really powerful, you know, this kind of jerky, grainy footage. And I look back at it on YouTube now and I don't know if it's just the power of suggestion or whatever, but I can't help but feel it's someone just dressed up in a monkey suit. That seems to be one of the prevailing theories, but there's three guys at least who say that they were the man in the monkey suit. And also, where's the suit? That's the big question, too. Like, who's got that? No one seems to be able to to produce it. So I don't know. I, you know. I'm not sold on that particular video, but the fact that there's still so much mystery surrounding it even now is kind of the thing that raises my eyebrows a little bit in terms of of that film. Plus, it was the 60s, so it was a lot harder to fake video then than it is now. But it's fair to say that you were or you are quite sceptical about Bigfoot. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair to say. I will say this. I'm a lot more open-minded to the possibility of it than I was, but I haven't seen anything yet that really convinces me that it is out there, that it's a real creature, flesh and blood, and it just happens to be very good at hiding from us. Um, the evidence has not yet come forth, whereas... You know, I, I've never seen a mountain lion in real life either, but I know that there, there's enough evidence there for me to be convinced that mountain lions are real. So how did you go from reading these lurid headlines and things like the National Enquirer to actually making a podcast about the subject? What was the impetus, the motivation there? That was entirely because of this relative of mine. So I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was working for the uh, the equivalent of Radio New Zealand in DC called NPR, and flipping through the through the newspaper, the Washington Post, and then happened to see this article about this guy who had donated his body to the Smithsonian, which I thought was really weird, and he had the same last name as me. So I start reading the article, and then probably about two thirds of the way through, there's this sort of throwaway section about how this man, Grover Krantz, used to drive around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and a rifle looking for Bigfoot. And I thought, what a weirdo. Like, who is this guy? And he's a he's a tenured professor of anthropology at a well-known university. He seems to be well-respected in the field of anthropology based on some of the other stuff I read in that article. And yet here he is chasing after Bigfoot. So first I had to find out who he was, like, were we actually related? And that was verified by my grandfather who remembered him from family picnics when they were kids. And he would come and measure people's heads with calipers. So this was a guy who was clearly (laughs) always into science and always into human anatomy and evolution and that kind of thing. And then when I, you know, I find out we're related and I kind of, well, that just kind of sealed the deal. I felt like I had to do something more. I had to research this somehow you know, how does a man who is so devoted to science also think Bigfoot is real? And that raises the question, well, maybe there was more to it than I initially thought. It would have been much more difficult for you, wouldn't it, to make the doco if you hadn't been related to Grover Krantz, because it really opened a few doors for you, didn't it? It meant people kind of took you seriously, if you like. Yeah, there was kind of two sides to that. First, I think the interest was largely because of Grover. Like, I don't know that I would have become as interested in the subject matter if I hadn't had this relative. So that was the first step. And then the second step is, yeah, it it definitely opened doors. He was very well respected in the Bigfoot community. He was sort of seen as one of the pioneers of Bigfoot research done in a, in a scientific way and was considered one of the, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery is how, how they refer to him, which is one of my favorite phrases of all time. It's just, it's just very funny. But anyway, there, it was him and three other gentlemen who were very well respected for the work that they had done in regards to trying to solve the Bigfoot question. And I would go to symposiums and lectures and, you know, weekend conferences, and I'd have my little name tag on and it would say Laura Krantz. And people would walk up to me and they'd be like, Krantz, are you related to Grover? And I would say yes. And it was like, I I felt famous. Like it was pretty crazy how people reacted to that name because he is so well-respected and so many people had known him or known of him. You say a few times in the podcast that, you know, we humans want to believe in Sasquatch. Why do you think that is? 
I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I know I came out of this really wanting Sasquatch to be real, really wanting to believe. You know, part of it, I think, is this idea that there's another sort of human-esque species walking around on the planet. Once upon a time, there may have been as many as eight or nine different hominid, human-esque type species that were walking around. And now, supposedly, there's just one, and it's us. And I think, you know, you kind of wonder, well, what would it be like if this other species were out there? Are they... Would this would this other species be like the road not taken? They they chose not to put pants on and start farming and pay taxes. Instead, they decided to stay in the woods. Is that our alternate reality? So I think there's some interest, both anthropologically, evolutionarily speaking, from that standpoint, and also just as kind of a, a romantic idea of, you know, the road not taken. I think too, a lot of people really like the mystery of it. You know, think of all the sort of odd mysteries that persist in in human folklore. Like I know in the US particularly, there's a lot of stuff around Roswell and mm. aliens and you know there there was the Bermuda Triangle for a while. That was yeah. a huge story when the I was Loch Ness Monster would be another exactly, one. Exactly. Yeah. That's another good one. There's supposedly some, you know, relic dinosaur living down in Africa somewhere. So those kinds of stories are appealing to people because I think they like the element of surprise. I like the idea that that the world is not so explored and tamed and mapped out that something like this could still exist right under our noses. Laura Krantz, who presented and produced Wild Thing. And you can find links to that and a list of some of Laura's favourite podcasts on our website now. rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour is the address. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.